I love seeing one of our our teenage girls out there strumming the guitar, jamming out, singing for the Lord. It doesn't get any better than that, man. That brings great joy to my heart. So that's that's good stuff, man. It sure is good to to see everybody. I hope you guys all had a great Thanksgiving. We we sure did. But man, I'm I'm, I'm glad to be back here with y'all this morning, and good to see so many of you back from travels and things like that. Uh, this morning we're going to continue our study of the book of Second Thessalonians. We've we, we went all the way through 1 Thessalonians, and now we're a few weeks into the book of 2 Thessalonians. And, 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 and we spent about five weeks in chapter 1, and, and last week we finished chapter 1 of the book of 2 Thessalonians. And, and what we saw over the weeks in chapter 1 is that Paul, Silas, and Timothy, the authors of First and 2 Thessalonians, they were commending the Thessalonians for just so many strengths that this church had. They had, they had so many strengths, and they're commending them for these strengths. They commended them for their faith, and, and they commended them for their, for their charity, and, and, and they commended them for, for their, their patience. And they had gone through all of these persecutions, and they'd gone through all of these tribulations ever since that they had come to saving faith. And, and they're just commending them for the way they've been slugging it out despite all that they've been going through. They, they commended this church often in their first letter to the church of the Thessalonians as well. They, they, they commended them, them quite often in 1 Thessalonians. If you were here for that, you remember that. And they've continued doing this same thing in their second letter to this church up to this point. In, in fact, all throughout 1 Thessalonians and through the first chapter of 2 Thessalonians, Paul, Silas, and Timothy haven't had one negative thing to say about this church. But that's all about to change. And, and, and what we're going to see is that there was something in particular that the church of the Thessalonians, that they needed to deal with and that they needed to get right. Satan had been attacking them. Satan had been deceiving them and, and despite all the strengths and despite all the successes of this church satan was starting to get a foothold and, and so as we begin this morning i want us to begin by by first looking at the design satan uses to deceive the the design satan uses to deceive you see satan has a design and a strategy and a way that he works to deceive us we can never forget y'all that that Satan works in the realm of false doctrine. He wants to deceive us with false doctrine, and that's what was happening to the church of the Thessalonians. Satan doesn't really care if you're deceived about who really discovered America or if the moon landing was real, right? He, no, he, he's trying, he, he's trying, we all have our own opinions on those things, don't we? And, and so, but he doesn't really care that much if he deceives you and he gets you there, okay? But he does very much care if you're deceived about this area of doctrine. And he wants to get you entrenched in false doctrine. Satan is always countering and counterfeiting everything that God does. He's done it that way from the very beginning, y'all. In Genesis chapter 3, Satan is already making moves to deceive, and he is really good at what he does. In, in, in Genesis 3.1, we see the reason that Satan is so good at deception is, is because he's so subtle. 
He, this verse talks about just how subtle he is. Another way we'd say it today is he's very, he's very crafty at what he does. And I think somehow some of us think that when Satan's operating in the world, that somehow it's just going to be really obvious when he's operating, like, like Satan's some kind of idiot or something, right? No, this verse talks about how subtle he is. And, 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 and listen, that's the reason Satan is so successful at deceiving, because he's, he's crafty. He doesn't look like it. doesn't look like it's him. And, and like we can see in this same verse, and as many of you know, what he did was is he tried to get Eve to question what God said. Satan tried to get Eve to question God's word or question what God had taught them. What did God really say and what did God really mean by what he said in this verse we see the first recorded words of satan and he says to eve yea hath god said and satan was trying to get eve to question the certainty of what god said what did god really say and what did god really mean by what he said and eve tells satan about the the command of course that that god had actually given directly to adam and he said to not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or they would surely die. And Eve goes on to tell Satan about that. And, and Satan responds to that in verses 4 through 5. And he says, ye shall not surely die. <coughs> and listen, he was telling, <coughs> excuse me, he was telling a half truth. He was right. They weren't going to die physically, but they sure did die spiritually, didn't they? And you know what he was doing right from the get-go? He's coming for the word of God. He's coming after the teaching of God. He was coming after doctrine. Doctrine in its most basic form means it's, it's teaching. And Satan was coming against the only real teaching and the only real doctrine that Adam and Eve had. You realize that? I mean, he is coming against, that's all they had, right? God had clearly taught Adam. Don't eat it of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Satan's play was to immediately come in and take that one doctrine and to twist that teaching. And he twisted it to where there was a hint of truth to it. And what Satan said it was really close to the, to the real thing. It sounded a lot like the real thing. In fact, he was very subtle and he was very crafty. And he said some, some things that were true, and he took the one doctrine that Adam and Eve had, and by twisting the truth of that doctrine ever so slightly, the whole world was plunged into sin. They only had one teaching, one doctrine to follow, and Satan comes right for that thing. And listen, he's never stopped doing that. Do you realize that? And he has continued to counterfeit the truth through the years, and he's working the same way he did in the garden right now. Because just like with counterfeit money, the best counterfeit is the one that looks the most like the real thing. And it makes it off, counterfeiting makes that money off just enough to make what you hold in your hand completely worthless. In the other words, it's off just enough to send somebody to hell. Listen, I get it. I get it. This church is more of a stickler on doctrine than most places, and I'm sure there's a lot of people that don't like that. 
We teach about the preservation and the inerrancy of the word of God. We teach about rightly dividing the word of truth and dispensationalism. We teach about eschatology or end times theology. We teach about the dangers of Calvinism and on down the list. And addressing those doctrinal issues are not popular things to do because some people may disagree and, well, doggone, that may limit our audience. And preachers just preach their little sermon with a nice little life lesson, and they leave the rest out. (laughs) And listen, the reason that we're so passionate about doctrine around here actually goes hand in hand with why we're so passionate about the preservation and the inerrancy of the Scriptures. It's because it all goes back to the importance of what God actually said and knowing exactly what He said and objectively determining what He meant by what He said. We're not passionate about doctrine because we get our jollies off of finding something to argue about with somebody. Right? We're not even, we don't even want to argue about it. We're, we're going to teach you what the truth is. No, we're passionate about doctrine and what God said because God is passionate about doctrine and God is passionate about what he said. <laughs> He's passionate about his word. He's so passionate that Psalm 138.2 says, God has magnified his word above his own name. And so if that's how God magnified it, then how could we run around and minimize it? (laughs) How could that be? And I think sometimes there are people that minimize the doctrines and the teachings of the Bible because they don't understand that God has purpose for those truths. And and, and it's not so that we can fill our minds with, with more information. No, God wants to use those doctrinal truths to impact our lives in a particular way. And if we don't have our doctrine right, then we're going to miss out on the way that God intends to change our lives and impact our lives through those truths. And Satan clearly understands how big of a deal doctrine is, and that's why he's attacked it from the beginning, and that's why he makes his living in in the world of false doctrine. And you see, we've got to remember that there is a reason that the Bible is referred to as a two-edged sword. Have you ever thought about that? You realize God could have just called it just a regular old sword and we would have gotten kind of the point, right? We would have have still, it was still taught us about the power that the word has if he'd have compared it to a sword, but he didn't call it that. He called it a two-edged sword. And the reason he did that is because the word can cut you in more than one way. It can cut you like a surgeon and it can cut out that heart of stone and, and put in a heart of flesh and... And it can cut like a surgeon for the purpose of ultimately healing us, but it can cut us and injure us and wound us too if we're not careful with that thing. It can cut us coming and going because if we don't get our doctrine right, the other edge of that sword is going to cut us and wound us in a way that we don't want to be wounded. So we better be careful with how we wield that sword because though there are ways that we can get cut by it and it's a good thing, there are ways we don't want to get cut by that thing but the word man that thing will cut you coming and going we better be careful with that sword and satan wants to use that to his advantage satan is out there with his teachers and they're using that sword deceivingly and deceitfully listen he's not near as involved in the houses of prostitution and and in the crack houses as people give him credit for because where he's really making his moves is in the house of worship He's hiding in religion. Remember, 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. 14, it even talks about 
Satan is transforming himself into an angel of light. And here's what he wants to do. If you aren't already saved, he wants to either keep you in the world or he wants you to find someone or somewhere that is naming the name of Jesus and is filled with spiritual sounding words, but, are actu- but they're actually talking about what 2 Corinthians 11 verse 4 refers to as another Jesus. They're using Jesus' name, but they're not using Jesus' teachings. It's not the truths that Jesus preserved for us in his word. And so they use Jesus' names, and they're filled with spiritual-sounding words, and they even use verses to back up their points, and they're even accurate with some of what they say, but they're off just enough to get you to believe something that is going to take you down the wrong path and maybe even send you to hell. Listen, in the church age that we're living in, Jesus plus anything is the preaching of another Jesus. Jesus plus anything is to have never been truly saved in your life. Jesus plus baptism, Jesus plus works, Jesus plus sacraments, it doesn't matter. Jesus plus enduring to the end. It's to live a life claiming the name of Jesus and clinging to Bible verses and find yourself in hell. That's what Satan wants you to find if you don't believe. Stay in the world or find you a church like that. But for those that do believe, he wants something different for us. Because he can't do anything to change the fact that we were born again and we've been bought and paid for and, 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 and we've, been saved by, we've, been, we've been saved by God's grace and we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. That ship has sailed, man. There's nothing he can do about that anymore. But he still does most definitely use false doctrine and wants to use it to get the rest of us tripped up, though. And and he can't use it to cause us to lose our salvation, but he can use it to debilitate us and he can use it to sideline us from being who we've been called to be and from doing what we've been called to do. I mean, just imagine if you didn't believe in eternal security and you believed that you could lose your salvation. Man, I hope I didn't do anything today that caused me to lose my salvation. I surely sinned today. So did I, did I cross the threshold today? I was a little hot-tempered today. I, was, I didn't treat my spouse quite as good as I should have today. I hope none of that was far enough past the line to cost me my salvation. And, and a lot of people that think you can lose your salvation say, no, no, you're mischaracterizing us. That's not what we believe. We believe that, that a day-to-day sin won't make you lose it, but that you have to stop believing, and then you lose your salvation. Okay. Well, I, I kind of lacked a little bit of faith today. I, I, I doubted. I was struggling with doubt today. Did I cross the threshold of losing there again? Did I cross that threshold of, of stopping believing enough now that it cost me my salvation? Because, man, if it can keep my salvation... It needs to be, I mean, it better be up here all the time. If you start doubting just a little bit, is that enough to lose it? Do I need to call on Jesus' name to save me again? Now, can you imagine how debilitating that would be to your spiritual walk? Can you imagine how ineffective you would be to minister the truth of Christ to others if you don't even know if you're saved from one day to the next? (laughs) How about if you get tangled up in Calvinism? The belief that God predetermines who will and who won't be saved. 
So God is predetermined who will and who won't be saved, and there's nothing that anybody can do to change it. Do you think that could get you messed up at all from the sideline, from the purposes that God has for your life? On Wednesday night, Corey has been showing us case after case of all the people that have gotten messed up with that system of belief and people that have completely left the faith over it. They start living in sin, and all of a sudden, they're not sure if they really are one of the elect anymore because why am I struggling so bad with this sin if I'm one of, if I, if I'm one of the elect? And so, man, I guess I might as well just live it up because if God really wants me, he's going to irresistibly call me back. And then at what point do you realize that on Calvinism, evangelism is pointless, and so you just throw evangelism out the window? They're either going to be saved irresistibly or not, and it was predetermined before the foundation of the world. So what are we even getting in an uproar about? What difference does evangelism make? And I get it. They claim to evangelize, but that is the logical progression of the belief. That's a pretty debilitating belief system and can render you ineffective to accomplish God's purposes for your life. And then, since I haven't offended everybody just yet, then what if Satan got your doctrine off on end times theology? What if he got you messed up there? What if he got you messed up in regards to the timing of the rapture? What if he got you thinking you were going to have to live through the tribulation period and you should be looking for those horrible events instead of looking for Jesus to return. Now, if you thought you were going to have to live through the insanity of the tribulation period, do you think that that would get, make you more inclined to be a prepper or a preacher? You know what I mean? It, would your focus be preparing for the wrath of God that you know is going to hit this planet or would it be on preaching the gospel to everyone before it's too late? Would you be stockpiling ammo and piling up food and getting your underground bunker built? Or would you be out there in the world as a fisher of men? <laughs> it would be pretty natural to spend, be spending your time getting yourself ready physically as opposed to helping other people get ready spiritually. And man, it's cool to be prepared if things get bad, you know. My underground bunker's halfway done. <laughs> but we can take it too far if that's our focus. It's debilitating. It can, it can render you ineffective to accomplish God's purposes for your life because you're too concerned with surviving what's next. And the truth is, God doesn't want us worried about those things, so he is pulling us off this planet before he unleashes his wrath on this planet. And the truth is, he, he doesn't want us to worry about that. God wants us to understand the doctrine of the end times and the doctrine of the last days so that we don't worry about that. He wants us to understand the rapture and the judgment seat of Christ and the tribulation period and the timing of those events so that we're focused on what we need to be focused on. And this is exactly where the church of the Thessalonians had gotten themselves messed up. This is the place. False doctrine had crept in regarding the rapture, and they thought they were living in the tribulation period already. And with all the persecutions that they were suffering, man, you can understand why they might actually think that. In, in light of the severity of how the tribulation period escalates 
throughout the process of the throughout the time of the tribulation period, you can imagine that this is a pretty concerning thing if you think that you're in it, because you know there's a long road ahead of you. And so as chapter 2 begins, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they're going to help the Thessalonians rightly divide between two particular days to get this thing straightened out. And, and they show us the days we need to distinguish. They show us in this passage the days we need to distinguish. There are, there are some days we need to distinguish the difference between if we're going to understand the doctrine of the end times. So in, in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, here's what Paul, Silas, and Timothy write. They say, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. And in verse 1, what I want you to notice is, is that Paul, Silas, and Timothy are beseeching the Thessalonians about something. They're, we don't usually use that word beseeching anymore, but it's a word that essentially means begging. So that gives you an idea of the passion with which that they're conveying this message. They're begging them to listen. They're begging them about something that, that had to do with understanding the difference between two specific days. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, it says, which is, of course, describing the second coming. And our gathering together unto him, which is describing the rapture. Are you seeing that in the passage? And they're laying these two days out. And Paul, Silas, and Timothy were teaching this, they were teaching this church how to rightly divide the word of truth as 2 Timothy 2.15 says and teaches us they're teaching us to rightly divide there, there are divisions in the bible which take which takes study to discern the difference between this verse teaches us there there are divisions in the bible it's possible to make the wrong divisions and it's imperative that we make the right di divisions the in the division being made in second thessalonians 2 1 is the division between two days which are the rapture and the second coming and you see, this is, the, this is something, listen, this is something that the Thessalonians should have already understood. They should have understood this thing because in Paul, Silas, and Timothy's first letter to the Thessalonians that we know of as 1 Thessalonians, in this letter, they've already spelled this out for them in that letter. We know it for a fact. They made this distinction between these two days. And, and just to refresh your memory on how this whole deal is, is going to shake out, they're there are no prophecies left to be fulfilled that would keep the rapture from happening right now. There's, there's, there's nothing left. That's the day we're looking for. We're looking for that day where our, it's our blessed hope where we're going to meet Jesus in the sky. Nothing's left to be fulfilled. But after we're raptured out of here, not long after that, the Antichrist is going to sign a peace treaty, and that will officially kick off the seven-year tribulation period. In the seven-year tribulation period, it culminates with the second coming and then, finally, the millennium. Are you, are you tracking with that? So with that bird's-eye view, let, let's, let's first take a little bit more of a close look at the rapture. Letter A, the, at the rapture. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 
lays this thing out for us very clear, and this is something that this church of the Thessalonians had access to. Here's what it says. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. And we can see a couple things that are clearly laid out for us in this verse. One of those things is that those that are believers in Jesus Christ are all going to meet Jesus in the air. The dead in Christ, or listen, those believers that have already gone home to be with the Lord, their bodies on earth, there's corpses that are on earth, they will rise first, and then right after that, those of us that are still alive on this planet, we will go right up after them, and we're going to all meet the Lord in the clouds. 1 Corinthians 15 gives us more insight into this event, and And we understand that actually on the way up to meet Jesus in the sky, we are all receiving new bodies incapable of sinning. That's what this passage, that's what the passage teaches us. So our believing loved ones that have passed on, they're they're soul and spirit. They're, They're already with the Lord. But at the rapture, God transforms the remains of their bodies, and he transforms the bodies of those of us that are alive, and, and, and that remain, and they transforms them on the way up. And so Paul, Silas, and Timothy, man, they, they lay this out for the Thessalonians in their first letter to them, and they break this information down for them. And as soon as they describe the rapture to them, they immediately begin describing the tribulation and the second coming. Okay, the, and, and that's what we're going to look at next, the second coming, letter B. Listen, they finished describing the rapture in chapter 4. Chapter 4 ends. Chapter 5 begins. And this is how chapter 5 begins, distinguishing the difference between these two days. It says, But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. And for when they shall say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of the light and children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Okay. And I don't know why those, are those not different colors? Those should be different colors. Verse 3, I want you to notice there's a, there's a major difference in verse 3 than there is in the surrounding verses, and it has to do with pronouns. So according to verses 1 and 2, the Thessalonians were well aware of what the day of the Lord was, okay? And though the phrase day of the Lord, it can cover a, a, a wide range of time, it is most consistently connected to the tribulation period and the second coming, and the context will tell us what exactly it's talking about. And so, so understand, the rapture is where believers leave earth and meet Jesus in the sky, and the second coming is where believers are coming back in the sky with Jesus to earth. The rapture happens first, then the seven-year trib, then the second coming. But it's important to understand that the tribulation period and the in the horrifying judgment that will take place on this earth as God pours out his wrath on this earth and on this planet, 
is not something that a believer in Jesus Christ is going to have to live through. We will be spared in this day of wrath. And if that wasn't clear enough already in these chapters, by him laying it out at the end of chapter 4 and beginning to describe a different day in chapter 5, just look at the pronouns that are used. Have you ever noticed this? Notice the transition between verses 2 and 3. It goes from ye, you, yourselves, to they, them, and they. And that's because this letter is to the church. It's written to a body of believers. And Paul, Silas, and Timothy, when they write, are making this transition in the pronouns that they're using. And they start referring to they and them when they start talking about sudden destruction. Because as believers, the Thessalonians were not going to experience those things. The Thessalonians and all believers in Jesus Christ won't go through the tribulation and won't be on the wrong end of God's wrath at the second coming. And we see that once they finish talking about the tribulation period again, immediately Paul, Silas, and Timothy start using the pronouns ye, you, we, and they start using all of these pronouns again because what they're saying again, it directly affects them. Verse 4, ye brethren, in other words, ye believers in Jesus Christ, you're not in darkness, you're in light. That day won't overtake you as a thief because you won't experience these horrible events in the tribulation and the second coming. Is that making sense? And so what we just saw from 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 is that the Thessalonians had already received the truth about the details and the timing of the rapture and the tribulation and the second coming. They already had this at their disposal. In fact, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 and 2, we see that the Thessalonians, they were, it says they were very familiar with the events of the day of the Lord and the second coming. It, verse 2 says they knew it perfectly, actually. It was the rapture and the events surrounding the rapture that were a little more foggy that, that they described in chapter 4. That's what they couldn't, they weren't getting their heads wrapped around clearly. You, you see, the day of the Lord, it's a term that's used a whole lot in the Old Testament. And it's something that they would have been more familiar with. This concept of the rapture, though, this was, a, this was a, a newer concept that they were processing that they would not have been as familiar with at this time. And, and, and that brings us to, to something very interesting that I want you to see about the importance of sound doctrine and the way Satan works. And, and, and in order to get you to see that, I want you to consider what 1 Corinthians 13, 13 says. And listen closely as, I, as we take you, as, I, as we go on this journey, or I'm going to lose you and nothing will make sense. So 1 Corinthians 13, 13, it says, And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity, right? We, all, we pretty much all know the, that verse. But have you ever stopped to think about what it's actually saying? It's saying that there are a lot of Christian virtues that we're to possess in our lives, but I'm putting these three in a category all of their own. Do you see that? These are the big three. Okay, so that's why in 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, and 9, Paul, Silas, and Timothy have already emphasized these same three virtues to the Thessalonians in their first letter to them. Do you remember this? Verse 8. Uh, verse 8, it says, But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope 
of salvation. Love is very closely linked to charity, right? And Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they're encouraging the Thessalonians to continue having this triad of Christian virtues in your life. It's so important that you continue to have the big three as a part of your life. And the reason that I say that it's important that they continued to have these virtues in their lives is because in the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians, we find that they did possess these exact virtues. This isn't the first time that this has come up in 1 Thessalonians. Verse 3 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, it says that they remembered without ceasing their work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope. Okay, so again, when Paul, listen, when Paul, Silas, and Timothy wrote the book of 1 Thessalonians, the Thessalonians were in possession of faith, love, and hope. And four chapters later in 1 Thessalonians, they're encouraged to keep going strong in, in that faith, in that love, in that hope. Now hang with me. As we've worked our way through chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians over the past month or so, we've been seeing, and I've mentioned already this morning, the ways that Paul, Silas, and Timothy have commended the Thessalonians and that they've been bragging on them. And in the midst of that, when you take a closer look at, at the way that the Thessalonians were commended, there's something that should stand out to you as noticeably absent from how Paul, Silas, and Timothy commended the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians versus the way they commended them in 1 Thessalonians. Now, I, I hope that you study some of these things on your own. I hope you read ahead and get ahead. I really hope that you try to get your head around where we're, where we're headed each week. But even if you did that, this might not have stood out to you. <laughs> What's missing from 2 Thessalonians 1.3? Right, we already saw 1 Thessalonians 1.3. What's missing from 2 Thessalonians 1.3? It says in 2 Thessalonians 1.3, We're bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because your, your faith groweth exceedingly. And, and the, the charity of every one of you all towards each other aboundeth. Okay, we, we just saw 1 Thessalonians 1.3, that the lives of the members of the church of the Thessalonians were previously characterized by faith, love, and hope. In the second letter to them, in this verse, in 2 Thessalonians 1.3, Paul, Silas, and T Timothy commend them for continuing to grow in the faith that they already had and continuing to grow in the love and the charity that they already had. But do you notice that there's a virtue missing this time that they aren't commended that they were growing in? What virtue is that? It's hope, isn't it? Hope is absent. I wonder why they left that one out. It must have just been just a mistake. I'm sure they had it. It was just a just a error. You guys have any ideas why they left out hope and why they didn't commend them in 2 Thessalonians for continuing to grow in hope, though they had clearly grown in love and clearly grown in faith? The reason that hope was left out is because false teaching had crept into this church and they believed they were living in the tribulation period and were going to experience the horrors of the tribulation period. If you thought that was your reality, do you think it would have an effect on your hope? <laughs> yeah. 
this church was just crushing it when it came to faith and love, man. I mean, they were just knocking it out of the park. Not only did they have it, they were just even continuing to abound in it and continuing to grow in it, but something had happened to their hope along the way. And what happened was false doctrine had stolen their hope from them. And here's how Satan works. Satan is going to do everything he can in churches that are standing on God's word and churches that are making disciples and reproducing and partnering with missionaries and churches that are trying to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. Satan is going to do everything he can to keep churches like that from being churches that are defined by faith, hope, and love. Satan's going to be working tenaciously to cause us to lose faith in him. He's going to bring persecution or adversity in our lives, and he's going to try to get us to question the goodness of God, and he's going to be working in every way he can to, to minimize and to shrink our faith. And not only that, he's going to be doing everything he can from keeping this to be from being a place that's defined by love and charity. So challenging or difficult circumstances are going to come between members of this church to try to keep it from being a place that's characterized by love and charity. And guess what? Satan was failing at these two things miserably with the Thessalonian church. He couldn't get them. He was trying to get him. He, he, couldn't, he couldn't get him, but guess what? He found a crack, and he started pushing his way in that crack, and he went after their hope. And he did it like he so often does. He found his way to weasel through, through the crack of false doctrine. And he got them turned around as it relates to the rapture. And they believe they're living in the tribulation period, which meant they got a long haul and this is going to be a rough ride. And they lost their hope. Like I mentioned earlier, it, it sure is easy to get your focus off of anything but making disciples and reaching the lost when you believe you're staring down the barrel the most horrific event in human history. Matthew 24, 21 says it's going to be the most horrific events in human history there's never been a time like it before there'll never be a time like it after it and so they were losing hope and listen this is what false doctrine does false doctrine doesn't exist in a vacuum false doctrine gets its little tentacles in everything and the effects of it listen the effects of it are far reaching it, it, it does it, am i off Oh, sorry. Am I off? Okay. The, uh, I, thought that I, I thought I couldn't hear myself for a second. So they were losing hope. This is what false doctrine does, though. Okay? False doctrine doesn't exist in a vacuum. False doctrine gets its grubby paws on everything, and in the effects of it, they're, they're far-reaching. They're even far-reaching than we realize. We tend to pass it off as this is just, uh, it's just no big deal. No, 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 God's got purposes for this doctrine. So it's of the utmost importance that we hang on to the sound doctrine. And listen, false doctrine about the end times, man, that's not the only false doctrine out there, of course. And the other false doctrines get their tentacles into everything too, and they get us messed up, and they'll sideline us from the purposes that God has for our lives. It isn't just, oh, you believe that and I believe that. No, he's got purposes through those doctrines that he wants us to fulfill and wants us to understand. Because listen, the false doctrines I'm talking to, talking about, they don't just come from, they, they're not coming from the Koran, right? 
We're not talk, they're, not coming, they're not coming from the Book of Mormon. I'm not even talking about those. No, it's much more subtle than that. <laughs> They've got a chapter and a verse for what they believe, and it comes straight out of the Bible. And we need to be able to recognize it or we're going to get tangled up in all of it and we're going to lose hope or get messed up in any other variety of ways depending on what the false doctrine is. So we need to be aware of the difference between the rapture and the second coming so the devil doesn't steal our hope. So we've seen this morning how, how Satan's working to deceive us through false doctrine and how the Thessalonians had gotten their end times theology all messed up. But in our verses this morning, God also lays out for us how these false teachers are operating. These false teachers that Satan's working through, he's, he's, uh, he, this is how they're operating. And so next, I want us to see the devices of the defrauders. God lays out some of the ways that they operate in the first few verses of chapter 2. Again, we've already touched on verse 1, but I do want us to begin there to get a, a running start into verse 2. Would you look at 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 with me? Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Okay, the first thing I want us to see is that verse 3 says, what's it say? Let no man deceive you by any means. We've talked about the ways that Satan is working, but one of the key ways that he's working is through men. Let no man deceive you. 2 Corinthians 11.13, it talks about those that are false apostles, those that are deceitful workers, that are transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. Listen, this is the world we're living in right now, man. Guys like this are everywhere. And it's probably the worst it's ever been because technology has given them a bigger platform with more people now. And what does our passage say are their devices? Look at verse, look at verse 3 of, of 2 Thessalonians 2. Verse 3 said, Let no man deceive you by any means. Okay, then verse 2 tells us what the means are that they're referring to. What, what, what means? The means they use is by spirit, by word, and by letter. You see that? So first, let's look at the way false teachers defraud and deceive by spirit. First, let's look at the way false teachers defraud and deceive by spirit. And listen, here's the part that I think is just so against the grain and something that we really have to, to consider and process and that we always have to remind ourselves of. Just like Satan is subtle and just like Satan is crafty, so are his teachers, right? These false apostles are not reading out of the, whatever they call it, the Bible of Satan, the church of Satan, and rubbing their hands together and twisting their handlebar mustache and giving it an evil laugh while they preach, okay? That's, that's, not, what that's not what they're doing. No, these are people, they've got a great spirit about them. 
They seem normal. They seem smart. They seem sharp. They know how to talk. They know when to smile. These are people that are hard not to believe. These are people that because of the spirit that they have about them, it makes you feel guilty for even questioning whether or not they were propagating false teaching. And despite how nice they seem, listen, there are satanic influences that are at play. 1 Timothy 4.1 says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith. Why are they going to do that? Giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Listen, the reason the person or preacher has such an appeal is because there's a seducing satanic spirit that's at work behind them. And that seducing spirit is connected to the doctrine of devils. But he seems like a nice guy and he uses the Bible. It's very possible that that description is a seducing spirit working behind the spirit of that man to teach the doctrine of devils to people. Not every doctrine from, that's taught from the Bible is sound doctrine. Sometimes it's doctrine of devils. And that really brings us to the, the second way our passage teaches us that false teachers work. They, they defraud or they deceive by word. That's what it says that they do. That's what 2 Thessalonians 2, 2 says, is don't be deceived by spirit or by word. Don't be deceived by that seducing spirit that's working through a false teacher. Don't be deceived by their nice-sounding words. In 2 Timothy 4, 2 through 4, God is teaching us how that we ought to preach in 2 Timothy 4, 2. And, and, and this, is how, this is how Paul teaches us. Preach the word, be instant in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned to fables. Listen, these teachers scratch people where they itch, man. They give people what they want. They don't give them what they need. And it's not sound doctrine. It's not truth. It's fables and it's fairy tales. They use their words to scratch people where they itch. And the people say, I kind of like that. I didn't realize how itchy that spot was. And they use their words to deceive. Romans 16, 17, it, it says, now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. Do you see that? That should be very concerning. So man, at, at this point, if you think that we're too hardcore about doctrine you ought to read the bible and see how hardcore god is about doctrine man we we don't touch the hem of the hem of the garment man but listen these, these verses they're about people getting tangled up in 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 false doctrine and they're doing it with good words and fair speeches it'll be a seducing spirit at work and they'll be teaching doctrines of devils while using good words and fair speeches in order to deceive the hearts of the simple. And 
listen, there are many simple people in the world. And I don't mean that to be cold-blooded. The vast majority of Christianity, though, is biblically illiterate. They are. That's just the reality. And, and here's the thing about the simple, according to Proverbs 14, 15. The simple believeth every word. Yikes. But the prudent man looketh well to his going. You see, being simple is connected with being lazy because they don't look well to their going. In other words, they don't diligently consider what they've heard and where it's going to take them. So when we sit here and tell you guys, hey, don't listen to us. Don't, don't take our word for it, man. Study it for yourself. What we're really saying is don't be simple and believe every word and be prudent and go out and study it for yourself. Because if you don't do that with us, then you might not do it with all the guys on the Internet. And where is that going to leave you? You've got to study that thing for yourself. We've already talked about 2 Timothy 2.15, but it's important that we see it again. It says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We got to study and we got to work or we're going to find ourselves ashamed before the Lord because there's a bunch of smooth talkers out there that are trying to deceive with their words. And if we don't study for ourselves, we're going to get swept away with that seducing spirit of the really charismatic personality that he preaches with but he's actually preaching the doctrine of devils. So these false teachers, they'll deceive by spirit and by word, and then next, the, the means by which they'll also deceive is by letter. It says that they'll deceive by letter. This isn't very interesting to me. 2 Thessalonians 2, 2 says, Don't be deceived as by letter from us. So as it relates to the Thessalonian church, being deceived by false doctrine about the end times and their confusion about the rapture and that they were in the midst of the tribulation period, it would appear that one of the ways that they were deceived, do you see this? One of the ways they were deceived was by a false letter that claimed to be written by Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Don't be deceived as by a letter from us. And keep in mind that the letters that the Thessalonians received were the word of God, and, and not only were they the word of God, that's exactly how the church of the Thessalonians received them. Do you remember that? They also, it, it was the word of God, and they received it as it was in truth, the word of God, as according to 1 Thessalonians 2.13. That's exactly the way they received it. So, so they received a letter that was fraudulent, that appeared to be from Paul, Silas, and Timothy, listen, that contradicted... The other letter that Paul, Silas, and Timothy had already written and what they had already told them about the rapture and the tribulation period. And they're receiving their word as the word of God. So which word of God are they going to believe? They were seemingly, listen, they were seemingly both the word of God, but they were saying two different things. Do you see where I'm going with this one? Two different words of God that say two different things. Now, that's a huge problem, wouldn't you say? Well, you'd be shocked at how many people don't think that's a huge problem. You'd be shocked at how many people say they think it's a big deal, 
while they're at a church that believes that way, but then all of a sudden it doesn't seem to matter once they leave. And most of you understand that I'm referring to the difference between the King James Bible and modern versions. Two Bibles that are both claiming to be the inspired, inerrant Word of God that say two different things that are in opposition to each other. Okay, that's a problem, man. And I don't have time to show you this morning all the different places where there are these contradictions. I could take you to places and show you where these two different versions contradict each other. If you're unfamiliar with this viewpoint, though, I know this is the point where everybody gets mad and begins to want to tune me out. But I'm telling you, listen to what I'm just listen for a second. I don't think I think sometimes our the opposition, I don't think they I don't think they're really listening. Because I'm telling you, people want to make us sound crazy for this, but our position on the King James Bible is the most logical and biblical position that there is to take. Especially if you believe that the Bible is inerrant and he promised to preserve it. Because logically, two things that are different are not the same, and it means one of them isn't inerrant, And biblically, God promised to preserve a perfect copy of his word forever, which means it has to be somewhere. And preserved in the original manuscripts, which no one has ever had and no one ever will have, is not preservation. And listen, this morning, I'm not going to spend the time to lay out all these differences in the versions. I'm going to show you, though, at least one particular place if you want to learn more about that go to Corey's series from a couple months ago called final authority that he did on wednesday nights and that's a deep dive into that that we're not going to do this morning but i am going to show you one zinger that you have to do something with psalm 12 verses 6 and 7 all right it says the words of the lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace of earth purified seven times Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. God will preserve his pure words forever. Not just his ideas and not just his concepts. His very words. And when two versions say two different things, then one of them isn't completely pure. And when the word is only in the original manuscripts, then it's not really preserved. And yes, the same God that spoke the earth into existence is powerful enough to preserve a perfect copy of his word in English over translations, knowing that English would be the the universal language of our time. A perfect copy of God's word has to be somewhere. And if it's not in the King James Bible then it's your move. Because we told you where we think it is. But it has to be somewhere. But nowhere can't be the answer based on what the Bible says about itself. Nowhere can't be the answer. And listen, I just want us to be aware that our passage this morning is warning us, don't be deceived by men and false teachers. And one of the ways Satan works through them is by multiple documents that are received as the word of God that say two different things. So listen, we we make a big deal about doctrine around here, but it's not because it's a a hobby horse. We're actually a a lot of nice guys around here, and we're not trying to 
argue with people or be idiots or anything like that. We make a big deal about doctrine because God makes a big deal about doctrine. <laughs> I don't understand where that disconnect is, where we have just gotten so frivolous with it, like nobody cares anymore about that. And God uses doctrinal teachings in the Bible because he has specific things that he wants, specific ways that he wants us to respond to the truths of those doctrines. There's things he wants us to do. And in the case of going through the tribulation, we can't have the hope that God wants us to have in our lives if we don't understand that doctrine. So sometimes the doctrinal truths of the Bible, sometimes, listen, sometimes they're showing us what we need to do. And other times they're, do, they're, they're saying that there's something that they want, God wants to do on the inside of us through those doctrines. Do, do you remember 1 Thessalonians 4.18, a passage we, we looked at earlier? Do you remember when Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they just laid out these details about the rapture? And I read this, but you may not have caught it. Listen, the, the, it, it, they, they lay out this whole thing about the reality of seeing our loved ones again and, and all of these things. And they laid out that doctrinal truth regarding the rapture. And after they finished spelling that out for them, they said in verse 18, now comfort one another with these words. This isn't just to store away, oh, that's interesting. No, you, no, there was, a, there was a purpose. There was a purpose or something you wanted to do in our lives through it. Comfort one another through these words. You see, sometimes God wants to use those truths to do something externally. And other times he wants us to use those doctrinal truths to do something to us internally. He wants to do something in us or through us through those doctrinal truths. And in this case, we know he specifically wanted to comfort us with the truth about the rapture. And, and of course, seeing our believing loved ones and not living through the tribulation period. But because the church of the Thessalonians didn't grab a hold of that doctrine, do you realize what was happening to them? Yeah, they lost hope. They were they were struggling, but this is all. But Second Thessalonians two two also describes one of the ways that they were struggling. Some of the ways they were struggling. Second Thessalonians two two says, "Don't be soon shaken in mind, or be troubled." They were shaken in mind and troubled. They were rattled by this false doctrine. Man, it was messing them up in their mind and in their emotions. They was having a reaction to it. And God had already given the Thessalonians all these details surrounding the rapture. He had given them that doctrinal truth in the first letter he wrote to them to comfort them because he knew without that truth they would, yes, lose their hope and they would be shaken in mind and troubled without it. Had they they gotten the doctrine of the rapture right, they would have been comforted. But instead, they got it wrong, and they were all rattled. They were shaken in mind, and, 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 and they were troubled. And listen, this is why it is so important that we understand the doctrines and the teachings that God has preserved for us in his word. God's trying to do, us, do something in us or through us as a result of these doctrinal truths that he's teaching us. And man, I get it. There are a million voices out there. I'm saying one thing, somebody else is saying another thing, and we all say you're crazy if you don't believe us, right? That's basically what's going on. You go to the Internet, and everybody says you're crazy if you believe what we believe, and then you can go to the Internet, and a bunch of people that believe like us say you're crazy if you don't believe. It's just, you know, it's all kinds of stuff. But listen, this, is com- this comes down to something that's very simple, but it's, but it's not very easy. 
it comes down to the personal responsibility of each individual to figure out what they believe and why they believe it. Each person in this room is responsible to show, to study, to show themselves approved unto God and to be a workman so that they're not ashamed. Because listen, man, Satan is out there. His false teachers are every thinking where and they want to deceive you. And they want to sideline you from what God wants to do in you and they want to sideline you from what God wants to do through you. Listen, you got to study it for yourself. At some point along the line, you have to uh, unlatch from mama and you have got to learn to feed yourself. Right? That's what this whole thing is about. Some point along the line, instead of what my church believes has to become what I believe and I know why I believe what you, what I believe and I can show you and I can take you and show you. Otherwise, you're just a sitting duck that get tossed to and fro with the seducing spirit. He doesn't call him seducing for nothing. Got to dive in. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And God, I pray that we would emphasize doctrine the way that you do. I know we live in a world where to take any stands on doctrine is, I know it's frowned upon and I know nobody wants to talk about it. I know everybody wants to just give the practical and move on and not, not say the controversial, God. But we're, we're going to dive into your word. And if you make a big deal about doctrine, we're going to make a big deal about doctrine. And so that's what we're trying to do, Father. And I pray, God, that we would figure out why it is that we believe what we believe. We would study and that we would work to find that out. And that we would, we would begin to the process of actually of feeding ourselves, God, so that whether we're in this church, whether we move out of state for a job, wherever, that whatever it is, God, that when we're removed from, this, from, the, from the insulation of this church where they're getting these teachings, God, Boy, we got to know this thing for ourselves. We gotta, we gotta apply it. We need to understand the importance of it, God. And I pray that we would do that. And we love you, Lord. In your name, we pray.